Oh, hell yes. I'm sorry for my language. I apologize for that, you guys. I got to be honest, though, it's been a very, very tough week for me. Amber and I moved this past week, and it was like hell on earth. You guys don't even understand. If you've ever moved and you understand how difficult it is, the only word I can use to describe it is hell. It's like every single day of the week, you're running around like a bat out of hell. My back hurts like hell from moving all of those boxes. Amber and I have actually decided that we are not going to move again until hell freezes over. That's it. We just won't do it until hell freezes over. If she comes to me in a few months or a year and she says, hey, honey, let's find a different house. I'm going to say, what the hell, lady? We cannot do that. (laughs) You know, for a culture that uses the word hell an awful lot, we don't like the concept of hell very much, do we? No, it is not something people get excited about. Nobody came here. Joshua said, this is going to be an exciting, positive, uplifting word. We're talking about hell this morning. Nobody expects that, right? In fact, everybody looks at hell as a negative thing. It's cited as the most common objection to Christianity. When you ask people, you know, like, what hangups, what issues do you have with, uh, with the Christian faith? They will tell you straight up, hell is number one in every single survey. You have probably heard people say things along the lines of this. I could not believe that if there is a loving God that he would ever send people to hell. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? Of course, yeah, we all have. In fact, some of you might be here this morning and that is exactly what you think. You're here and you're skeptical. You found out we were gonna talk about hell and you're like, listen, I wanna come hear what these guys have to say about it. But the whole idea that there would be a loving God who might condemn somebody to an eternity in hell, that angers you. And I understand. I used to feel the same way. You might be here this morning and you're a Christian. You've been a believer for years, but hell has always made you uncomfortable. You've always struggled with that part of what the Bible says or that part of the teachings of the Christian faith because it's like, Hell immediately makes people uncomfortable when you bring it up. If you're ever talking to your friends or your family about faith, the second hell comes up, whether you bring it up or they bring it up, it's like the mic drop moment, you know? The second it's mentioned, conversation over, people walk away. How could you be so bigoted? How could you be so narrow-minded? I mean, it's like hell is so out of step with what we believe as a culture in the 21st century, that it seems wrong somehow that God would send people there. It seems barbaric and backwards. Sure, God's used to punish people and condemn them to an eternity uh, without him. They used to do that. God's used to do that in the past. But in the 21st century, we've moved beyond that, right? We've gone past that at this point. You might even think, or you've probably heard people say, it's evil. If there is a God and he condemns or sends or sentences anyone to hell, then he is evil. So what are we supposed to do as Christians? Like, wouldn't it be easier if we were to just like soften hell a whole lot? Like knock off the sharp edges, make it a, you know, a nicer place. And maybe the Bible doesn't really mean what it says, or maybe we should just forget about hell altogether. Maybe that made sense back in the Middle Ages, but today we should just forego hell completely. And there are a lot of Christians that have done that in recent years. 
This morning, as we move into the end portion of our series called Afterlife, we are going to tackle this subject of hell head on. And we're going to strip away all of our preconceptions, all of the non-biblical ideas that you've been given about hell over the years, and we're going to allow Jesus to speak on the subject. We've told you all along, Connect is going to be a church where we lower every bar of entry we can because Jesus says some things that are pretty stringent. He says some things that are pretty difficult. And so we're going to let Jesus say the hard things. We're going to love and serve people and then point them to what Jesus actually says. This morning, that's precisely what we're going to do on the subject of hell. Now, the message is going to kind of form two sections, or there's going to be two parts this morning. The first one is going to be very metaphoric, it's, or not metaphoric, but rather uh, metaphysical. It's going to be philosophical. It's going to be general and abstract. We're going to answer the question, how could there be a loving God and an eternal hell? How can those two things coexist? Because in our mind, they're contradictory. In the second half of the message, we're going to deal with the more practical, the, the specific side of hell. What does the Bible say it's actually going to be like? And so if you're kind of like, oh, I came here for the philosophical or general answers, you'll get that on the front end. If you came here for the specifics, you want to know exactly what it's going to be like, so you know what to expect, um, then uh, you know we'll do that at the end. I'm sorry, that was probably a terrible joke. Shouldn't have made it. They're going to revoke my pastor card for that that one. All right, we're going to go to Luke 16, same passage we've been in every single week this month. We'll be there again next week. We're going to read Luke 16. This is a parable, a story that Jesus told to illustrate the afterlife. I'm going to read it through today. I'm not going to give you a lot of the running commentary that I typically do because we don't have a ton of time this morning. So if you want to know some more nuance, come back next week. We'll dig into that or catch the podcast from the early two weeks. And I give you some more nuance and some background on some of these verses. Luke chapter number 16, we're going to start reading in verse number 19. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen, who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, who was covered with sores. As Lazarus, the poor man, lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. I told you over the past couple weeks, that's a Jewish way of saying he went to heaven. He went to be with Abraham. The rich man also died, and he was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. We're actually going to come back to this phrase a little bit later in the message, because the way it's written in Greek, it says his soul went to Hades, which is the Greek word for hell. Literally, the most basic reading of that phrase is, the rich man died, and his soul went to hell. There, in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from there and no one can cross over to us from there. 
Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him to warn them so that they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. Essentially, he says they have the Jewish Bible. They have the Old Testament. They can read and understand through those verses. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Can I just put this out there? Let's just go ahead. We'll throw it out. We'll deal with it right off the bat. Jesus presented hell as a very real place. If you have issue with the concept of hell, then you have issue with Jesus himself. I told you a couple of weeks ago that Jesus spoke more about heaven and hell than everybody else in the Bible combined. And if you do the study, you find out that Jesus spoke about hell twice as often as he spoke about heaven. So let's not buy into any of this nonsense that you might have heard from like, you know, your college buddy or a professor that you had, that hell was something that the church invented hundreds of years after Jesus in order to keep people in line. That's simply not true. The number one source of information, the number one revealer of the reality of hell is Jesus himself. And so if you want to go through and cut out hell, you have to cut out a good chunk of the words that Jesus himself spoke. Now, here's the deal. That makes some of you want to check out already. Some of you came, and like I said, you've got a skeptical bent. You were like, maybe they're going to say something that's going to make me think differently this morning, and I hope to. But already, you're like, fine. If you guys really believe in eternal conscious torment for people who like told white lies, then I am not going to buy into this. And so you're like, I'm going to pull out my phone. I'm going to pass the time. I'm going to catch a nap, whatever it is, until this service is over. I understand that. I do. If you and I were to sit down at a table, my guess is you would probably say something like, look, I just can't believe in that kind of God. Uh, the God that I believe in, this is what the average Canadian at least would say, the God that I believe in, if God exists, then that God would be loving. I believe that God would let everyone into heaven. He wouldn't send anybody to hell. In fact, it's exclusive. It would be barbaric or evil to send anyone to hell. And guys, if you're sitting here and that's the, that's the thought that's rolling through your head, I want you to know that I have been in your shoes. I wasn't raised in church. I thought this was total garbage. I couldn't believe that any group of people, in fact, one of the largest groups of people across the globe would say to themselves, there is a loving God who would also have an eternal hell that people would go to. So I get where you're coming from when you say, no, the God that I believe exists would be all love and grace and forgiveness to everybody. But can I tell you something that I find very interesting and perhaps even a little bit ironic? If I were to pair you up with somebody from an Eastern culture. So let's say I, I pulled you aside this morning. I said, hey, let's go have coffee. I, I wanna take you out. I wanna buy you some Timmy's this week. I wanna have a chat with you. Oh, by the way, my buddy from Africa or East Asia or the Middle East is gonna be coming with us. I took you as a Westerner and I took them as an Easterner and we sat down for coffee this week. 
And I started to talk to you about the grace and love and goodness of God, do you know that you would be happy and they would be upset? And if I then turned around and started talking to you about the judgment and the righteousness and the holiness and the avenging nature of God, you would be upset and they would be happy. Why is that? Because we are most attracted to the aspects of God's character that line up with the culture we were raised in. Do you understand that? We are most attracted to the aspects of God's nature that line up with the culture that we've been raised in. So in an individualistic, pluralistic democracy like Canada, we could not fathom the idea that there would be a God of judgment. Are you kidding me? Oh, the humanity. That God cannot exist. He's got to be love. He's got to be goodness. He's got to be soft like a marshmallow. That's the only God that I could possibly believe in. But hear me, the other half of the world has no problem with a God like that. People who are raised in a culture very different from you have a different conception of who God should be. Tell you what, why don't I take you to Africa? Let's go to Africa, you and I. We're going to go to a village in which men are beheaded, women are raped, and 11-year-old boys are forced to become child soldiers. And then I want you to get up in front of the village and I want you to tell them about the God who lets everybody into heaven. I want you to tell them, hey, I know those were evil people in bad times, and gosh, I feel so sorry for your pain, but in the end, God's going to give everybody a big hug, and we're all going to be happy together in the sky. They will laugh at you. Like, that God would be insane in that context. Are you kidding me? They would never believe in a God like that. They would say, no, 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 no. The only God that's worth believing in is a God who's willing to right wrongs, who's willing to fight injustice, who's willing to judge evil. And so on the one hand, you're sitting here saying, God has to be love and grace. And on the other hand, the other half of the world is saying, no, God has got to have judgment. He has got to be righteous and good and holy, or he's not worth believing in. And I want you to understand, this is not just like some random person two oceans away on the far side of the planet. There are people in our city who believe that way as well. They have the completely opposite view of God than you do. Amber and I were having lunch on Friday, and during lunch, we got into a super interesting conversation with a woman who, uh, she was an Indian woman, she was born in India and emigrated to Canada, and she was raised as a Hindu. And so we started talking over lunch about aspects of our faith, aspects of her faith, what she believed and how she was raised and all of those different things. And during the course of the conversation, this woman said to my wife and I, you know what I find so interesting about your Christianity? We said, no, what? She said, I find it so interesting that you believe God is your friend. She said, in our religion, we don't, there's no idea that that could happen. She said, we don't think it's possible to have any sort of relationships with the gods. They're separate from us. They're different. They're like out there and we're here. And so literally... You sit here this morning and you say, no, the only God that's worth believing in would be the God who loves everybody and doesn't judge anybody because we're all broken and flawed. And, uh, you know, I just cannot believe in that kind of God. 
And the person who in our little story is literally sitting inches away from you is saying the exact opposite. I could never believe in a God who didn't judge evil when it showed itself on earth. You tell me which one of you is right. Why is your conception of God better than her conception? Why is your assumptions about God's nature more important? Why do they take precedence over theirs? I'm just going to be honest with you. It seems at least very ethnocentric, and to be quite frank, it seems a bit racist for us to say, no, 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 no. They're barbarians to believe in a God like that. We are sophisticated. We are cosmopolitan Westerners. We are enlightened. We have the right understanding of who God's nature should be. That just sits really wrong with me, and you've probably never considered that, that half the world has the exact opposite objection to believing in God that you do. Now, here's what's cool about this whole thing. I think the fact that God kind of pisses off everybody, he says things that anger and frustrate and push away every single culture is evidence for God, not evidence against God. Let's assume for a second that there is a God out there, one single God who rules over everything. If he existed, he would be transcultural. He wouldn't be a reflection of white middle to upper class Canadians. And he wouldn't be a reflection of African villagers either. This transcultural God would say things that both affirm and contradict the personal and cultural beliefs of everybody across time. There would be things that that God said that you're like, right on. Yes, sir, that's the God I want to follow. And then there would be things that that God said that you'd say, oh, no, I don't like that at all. And it's reversed for people on different sides of the planet. Listen to me, my friends. You do not want a God who agrees with everything you say. You do not want a God who agrees with everything you believe. You want a God who challenges you, who stretches you, who grows you. Because a God who never disagrees with you is a God invented by you. There's a pastor I know named Tim Kelly. I don't know him, but I read his stuff all the time. Not buddies with old TK. But anyway, (laughs) not yet. I will be one day, right? So here's the deal. He says this, if your God never disagrees with you, you're probably worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Guys, like we, we sit here and we're so smug. We've got it figured out. We understand God and who he should be. And we don't even know the right questions to ask. We are like children We don't even know the conversations we should be having, and yet we walk around as if we've got it figured out. You cannot, you cannot walk around and just pluck out the parts of the Bible that you don't like and throw them away. You either take it or you leave it. That's the way life works, or at least an intellectually consistent life. You don't do that with, with uh, other parts of your existence. Like, you don't just tear out the parts that you don't like. You don't do that with science. You don't say, you know what? I don't like the laws of thermodynamics. I'm not going to live according to those today. You don't get that choice, sucker. 
You don't get that choice. You can't do it with your spouse. My wife can't say to me, oh, I, he's, he's so handsome. I don't know if she says this or not, but he's so handsome. He's so funny. He's so smart. He's such a great guy. But I don't like the fact that he's only 5'6". So I'm going to take the handsome, smart, funny, lovable parts of him, and I'm just going to forget, or I'm going to leave the 5'6 height behind because I want him to be at least 5'10". She doesn't get to do that. She takes me or she leaves me. You cannot take or leave parts of faith. You either take what Jesus said or you walk away from it. You have that right, guys. You can walk away. It's totally fine. God gives you that option. But what you cannot do is say, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I don't like this hell thing, so I'm going to leave it. You cannot do that. If you do that, then sure, you will have created a faith, a religion for yourself that you enjoy, but it can't be taken seriously. I can't take you seriously if you did that. Nobody's going to take you seriously. You shouldn't take yourself seriously. You're not going to reorder your life around a religion where you go through and decide this is the part I like and this is the part I don't, so I get to pick and choose. It does not work that way. So understand, that's the, the, the biggest, easiest, and, and what I think is one of the best philosophical arguments for how a loving God could also have judgment and holiness and righteousness. Because just because you like this part of him doesn't mean this part of him shouldn't or doesn't exist. There are other people that believe the exact opposite from you. And so maybe, maybe our conception of God is more culturally conditioned than anything else. Just maybe you're looking for the God of love and forgiveness and marshmallow grace because that's what your Western individual pluralistic culture has told you to look for. And there are other people that are looking for the exact opposite. And so if God is who you want him to be, half the planet will be disappointed in him. And if God is who they want him to be, then you'll be disappointed. So maybe God is complex. He's deep enough. He's rich enough. He's big enough to be who everybody needs him to be. Okay, let's get a little more specific. Let's talk about like what happens. What's it like? How do people end up there? And what do they experience when they go? I want to redirect your attention to Luke chapter number 16, verses 23 and 24. Um, in this passage, there's some wording that's used here that we need to pay attention to. We can't just read over it. We can't pretend it's not there. That's what I just told you we can't do. And so it says, the rich man died and his soul went to hell. And in torment, Later, it says, he cried out, I'm in anguish in these flames. So what do we do as Christians, as seekers, skeptics? How do we understand hell as Jesus talks about it? Where there are flames, where there's agony and anguish, where there's darkness, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth like how do we read that? Is it just what it is and that's that? Well, here's the deal. Most people have this picture of Judgment Day. And you may, this may be you. You think that somebody's going to die and then they're going to stand before God on Judgment Day and God is going to look at them and he's going to say, you know, you told a lot of white lies, 
You didn't put money in the offering plate when you were there on Sundays, and you slacked off at work, and when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, you slept with your girlfriend, shouldn't have done that. So because of your sin, I sentence you to hell. And it's like in, in the popular conception, demons come up and grab the person, they drag them down to hell. And then in hell, these people are tortured by the devil who's in a red suit with horns, and he's got a pitchfork. And they live eternally miserable. They have no way out. They're crying, God, please save us. Let us out. We want to be free. Please, 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 God, please. And God turns his back on them, and he walks away. He never gives them another chance. He never gives them another thought. This is their sentence. This is their judgment. This is what they will endure for their screw-ups and sins in life. Now, if that is what you believe hell is like, can I tell you that that is a pretty terrible picture of Judgment Day and of what happens in hell? In fact, it's not even a particularly biblical picture of Judgment Day. When you read Luke chapter number 16 and many other places in the Scripture, there might be some elements that you could pull out from that popular conception, but you actually don't find it in the Bible. You know where that idea of heaven comes from? Last week, I told you about where our popular notions of heaven come from. Um, they come from uh, Plato, the ancient philosopher. Do you know where this popular conception of hell comes from? It comes from a guy named Dante who wrote a poem back in the 14, 1300s called The Inferno right? Did you ever read that or ever hear about that in school? The Divine Comedy? This is the guy who's responsible for the popular conception of hell. So forget all the cartoon stuff that you learned. Let's look at what the Bible actually says. Let me point out something that I promise you is going to blow your mind. You're going to be like, whoa. When you read Luke chapter number 16 closely, do you know what you see? You find out that the rich man in this story never asks to get out of hell. Instead, he only tries to bring Lazarus down with him. Go back and read it. He's got the opportunity. Not everybody will get this opportunity. He's got the opportunity to speak to Abraham, to speak to the God figure essentially in this story. And he could ask for anything. And he never says, God, let me out, please. I need another chance. I want to be with you forever. It never happens. There are also no red devils, no pitchforks. I mean, there's none of that stuff. It's also really interesting, and we are going to develop this thought a lot next week. So if this intrigues you, you are going to want to come back. It's also so interesting to see how he treats Lazarus. Because he says, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus, the servant, the nobody, the lowborn, that poor guy. Send him to come serve me. He's still in hell and treating everybody else as if he's better than them. He never asked to get out, and he's still acting like he's still king of his own kingdom, of his own domain. To me, that is incredible. It is mind-blowing that he never asks to get out. He only tries to pull other people around him down with him.
See, here's the biblical teaching. And some of you are going to disagree because of your personal theology, and I get that. That's cool. We can have a, a friendly discussion if you want to later over coffee. But for those of you guys that are on the outside looking in, you're like trying to figure this Christianity thing out, and you're like, this is not making sense to me. There seems to be a disconnect between this loving God and people going to hell forever. I want you to understand what I believe the biblical teaching is. People are not chosen for hell. People choose hell for themselves. People are not chosen for hell. God, doesn't, God, God never looked at you the day you were born and said, nah, that baby's not going to spend eternity with me. Mm-mm. Don't want him. Too ugly. <laughs> he doesn't say, nah, I, I'm going I'm to write them off. I'm going to cast them aside, and they're going to live a terrible life, and then on judgment day, I'm going to judge them for the terrible life that I caused them to live. That's not the picture of God that I see in the Bible. What I see is people choosing hell for themselves. Now, I know you're sitting there saying, that's stupid. It's ridiculous. Come on, it's totally crazy to think that somebody would reject paradise. Nobody would reject paradise, and you're right. Nobody would reject paradise. But understand that on judgment day, people are not rejecting God's paradise. They are rejecting God's presence. That's the difference. If they could have paradise without God, they would accept it happily. They would love to go to heaven. But as I told you last week, the thing that makes heaven paradise is God's presence. He is there. We have a deep, close, personal, face-to-face relationship with God. And people who spent their entire lives trying to get away from God's presence, trying to avoid a relationship with him, will continue to do it for eternity. They'll continue to push God away, even after they look at him face to face. Let me give you a couple of examples and understand that if these examples hit close to home, I don't know your story. I don't know you, okay? Maybe this is God speaking to you. I don't know. Maybe it's just coincidence. But let's say that your whole life, you've been pushing God away. You've been trying to keep him at arm's length because you're angry with him because perhaps you were born with some sort of disability. I don't know, but maybe. And you're frustrated and you're mad. You're like, this is not fair. My sisters are all fine. My brother leads a normal life. And here I am and I have to deal with this. And God, I'm so mad because it's not fair. Or maybe you lost somebody near and dear in your life, somebody that you cared about greatly. And you're like, God, come on, this is wrong. It's not right. I'm so mad and I'm so angry and I'm so frustrated. Let me tell you that when you stand before him on judgment day, you're still gonna be so mad and bitter about the things that have happened in life. You're gonna walk right up to the judge's bench and you're gonna give him an earful about how unfair he was and how wrong your life was the entire time. And you're gonna say, you were never there for me in life. I don't wanna be here with you in death. People continue to choose hell for themselves every single day, and these same people will continue it on into eternity. They're not rejecting paradise. They're not rejecting streets of gold. They're not rejecting like living forever and hugging Nana and singing Kumbaya. They are rejecting God's presence just like they did every day of their life. You see, people are not chosen for hell, but people choose hell for themselves. If heaven is defined by God's presence, hell is defined by God's absence. And so people will choose. They will turn in on themselves. They will, they will uh, turn, say no to God. They will refuse him. They will push him away again and again and again for all of eternity. 
And this is what we talk about when we talk about the torment of hell. C.S. Lewis, a great author, I quote him all the time. He wrote this. He says, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. Or those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. If somebody spends, if you spend your entire life saying, God, get away, I'm running away, I want nothing to do with you, leave me alone, one day he will. C.S. Lewis wrote in another book that hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. You think hell is a picture of God's anger and his wrath and his ugliness. In reality, hell is God giving you what you've been asking for this whole time. Separation, distance, being away from him. Another way to look at it, I think this is a great image, is that the, the door to hell is slammed shut. There's no doubt. It is slammed shut and it is locked, but it's locked from the inside. That people continue to hold the door shut against God against relationship, against goodness, against community, against grace, against care for one another. They continue to hold the door shut and keep God out just like they did every single day in life. All right, the Bible talks about flames and darkness and worms and gnashing of teeth and weeping and wailing. Are those literal? I mean, how should we take them? Let's Let's talk about those things for just a sec, okay? And we're going to wrap this message up here. The Bible is very specific with the words that it uses. And so if we take the Bible seriously, we need to pay attention to the words that it uses and then the words that it doesn't use, okay? And so in particular, I want you to notice that in our passage this morning, the word that's used over and again is torment, not torture. Now, those are two very similar words in English, but in the original language, they're nothing alike. And the word that's used over and again is torment. Now, again, the popular conception is torture. Jesus sends people to hell and demons are poking them with pitchforks for all of eternity. They're tortured for their sins. Torture, 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 torture. But that's not the wording that the Bible uses. Torture is something exterior. It's something outside. It's something that's done to you. Torment, on the other hand, is internal. It's something that, that comes from within. And people in hell are tormented. They are tormented by the decisions that they've made, by their turning in on themselves. And you're like, wait, that's miserable. That's not fair. That's not right. Can I tell you, you've witnessed this here on earth in the form of addiction? Have you ever known somebody that's addicted to something, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is? And it's like they continue to choose the thing that they think brings them freedom and happiness, and all the while it makes them even more miserable and isolated as days go by. This is precisely what we see in hell, where people choose the things that will make them, they think will make them happy, but it actually causes them to turn in on themselves. And over time, they become more miserable. They become more self-absorbed. They lose the capacity to be in relationship with God. And they keep pushing him away and away and away. Now, 
these flames that the Bible speaks of, I think personally that these are metaphors. I really do. I don't, I don't think that they're literal. I could be wrong. I think that they're metaphors. I think the worm that never dies is a metaphor. I think the darkness is a metaphor. And, and there are some pretty strong theologians that back me up on this. C.S. Lewis, who I've already quoted to you, John Calvin believed that these were all metaphors. And those are two dudes on the theological spectrum that are pretty far apart, okay? So it's okay. Like, if you disagree with me, that's cool. It's no big deal. But I think they're metaphors. Now, here's the deal, okay? Um, The reason I think they're metaphors, by the way, is the Bible talks about flames, but it says that hell is a place of utter darkness. Flames produce light, and so if hell is darkness, they can't be flames as we know them. Also, things are never consumed. They're never burned up in hell, and if that's the case, they can't be flames the way that we typically know them. If it's a worm that never dies, we have no concept of that in the world as we know it. So I tend to take these as metaphors, but here's the thing. I don't want you sitting there this morning going, whew, thank goodness they're all metaphors, because they're metaphors for something worse. <laughs> the metaphor for flame is the agony of knowing that you've rejected your God, that you've turned in on yourself. It's the same agony you see in people with heroin addictions or alcoholics. It's like the agony that they continue to bring on themselves. That's the flame it's talking about. It's the darkness of being isolated. Here's a little detail you probably never picked up on in Luke chapter number 16. Lazarus, the man in heaven, is pictured as eternally in relationship. He's not alone. The rich man in hell is predicted, or he is, um, uh, he is spoken of as being eternally in isolation. He is always by himself. And that's what I think the darkness speaks of. It's not like, oh, good, they're metaphors, thankfully. It's like the metaphors are worse, you guys. There's a reason that he uses such strong imagery because he wants you to see this is for real. It's serious. Let me quote C.S. Lewis to you one more time. As you can tell, I've got a man crush on the dude. Um, He says this, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking him to wipe out people's past sins and at all costs give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? C.S. Lewis says, but he has done so on Calvary. That is on the cross where Jesus died. He gave us exactly what we said we wanted. Are you asking God to forgive all of these people? The problem is they refuse to be forgiven. Are you asking him to leave them alone? C.S. Lewis says, alas, I'm afraid that's what he eventually does. You see, Lewis's words are right, and they offer the final proof that everything I've said to you today is true, because you sit in your seat and you say, oh, I would believe in a God who is loving and gracious and good, who forgave all my sins, who didn't hold my mistakes against me. That's the kind of God I'd believe in, and you have that kind of God, but you still don't believe in him. So maybe the objections that you're voicing in your mind right now are not the real objections. Maybe there's something deeper that's actually going on because you have the God you've hoped existed and you still reject him. Can I tell you why I made the transition from unbelief, from being an atheist, from being a skeptic and became a a follower, a, a faithful devotee of Jesus? Can I tell you why? 
It's partially because of the words that Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter number 27. We're going to put them here on the screen. You can just read them right there. Scripture says, as Jesus was crucified at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus experienced separation from God. And if we've defined separation from God as hell, Jesus himself went through hell so that you and I don't have to. Jesus experienced. He put on display what separation really looks like. In order for this verse to make sense, you've got to understand that Jesus was not just a regular man. He wasn't a good teacher like the Buddha or something like that. He wasn't the Dalai Lama who had some smart wisdom to say. Jesus was somebody else altogether. You see, BC, before Christ, in the early days of humanity, guess what? We had no idea what God was like. And so people would guess and they'd say, well, I think God is like this. He's love and justice and um, you know, squishy marshmallows and he's over this over here. And they'd have all these different conceptions and nobody knew who was right. And so God actually enters our world as Jesus to reveal himself to us, okay? Then this Jesus, God incarnate in the flesh who has always been in relationship with God the Father, he enters into our world and we don't worship him. We don't love and accept him. Instead, we hate him. The Bible says that Jesus experienced racial and economic discrimination. People treated him poorly because of his his ethnicity, because of what he had and didn't have in life. He was betrayed by the greed of one of his closest friends. This God incarnate, Jesus, he threatened the governmental and religious structures of his day that were unjust. And because of that, they put him to death. He bore the worst hatred and evil that humanity could throw at him. He took it willingly on himself when he was nailed to a wooden cross. And on that cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why is it that you have forsaken me? He experienced hell. He experienced separation. He was cut off so that you don't have to be. When I was an atheist, I used to kind of picture this in my head. I've always had a a pretty vivid imagination. And I used to picture this, and I used to be very confused by how all of this works. And I wonder if there aren't some of you here this morning that that have this same confusion, this same mental picture in your head. I'm going to paint this for you. This is not in the Bible. This is just the way that I always pictured it. Maybe it's the same for you. You think that the way Judgment Day works is that you are standing in front of God and God has a gun to your head, right? I know this is not literal again, okay? It's not in the Bible, but he's got a gun to your head. He's about to pull the trigger. He's about to execute judgment on your sinful butt. And the Christian story, as you understand it, goes that as God the Father is pointing the gun at your face and pulling the trigger, Jesus does that whole slow motion dive in front of it. No! And he takes the bullet for you. And then you get confused when Christians are like, see how much God loves you? Go throw your arms around the father who is just pointing a gun at your head. And you're like, are you kidding me? This makes no sense. I'm supposed to love and accept and worship the God who was just about to execute judgment on me. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. And I agree with you. It doesn't. Maybe 
The picture you should have in your head is not that God is pointing a gun at your head, but that you are pointing a gun at yourself. Maybe every single stupid mistake, all the addictions you battle, your broken relationships, your desire to prove yourself by how much money is in your bank account, your frustration because you're not as good looking at that person, and on and on it goes. Maybe that's all evidence that you're sitting there with the gun pointed at yourself. And the whole time, God the Father is trying to talk you down. I love you. I created you. I want you to understand you are special and I put you here for a purpose, but you're having none of it. You won't listen. And so God's son, Jesus, actually puts himself in between you and the gun that you're holding on yourself, your own sin, the prison that you've created by all of your stupid choices. God puts himself in the middle just as you pull the trigger. Jesus takes the punishment and for a split second, you're left holding a smoking gun still pointed at your face and you're faced with the decision. What do I do now? And too many of you are gonna pull the trigger a second time and a third time and a fourth time and you're gonna do it into eternity. You are in this moment where I believe God's spirit is working in your heart and you're starting to see yourself as the Bible presents you and you're starting to see God as he reveals himself, not as the meanie, not as the guy who's ready to squish you for every mistake you make, but the guy who wants to save you from your sin. So for some of you, it's time. Like you've been here for weeks and weeks and weeks and you're like, ah, I should, I wanna make the decision, but I don't know if I'm gonna get it right or what are people gonna think? Forget all of that. You are standing there with a smoking gun in your hand and you're gonna put off a decision. You've been given a second chance. You have the God who loves you, who saved you, who's been trying to grab your attention and give you life overflowing as we talk about week after week. All you have to do is put the gun down, lay down your arms and say, God, I'm not rebelling against you anymore. I accept you as my savior. You are saving me from the wreck that I have created. So let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. If you're ready for that moment, you really want to accept Christ. You want this new life. You are tired of what you've experienced and you come to realize now Jesus is the way out. I want you to pray a simple prayer with me and it is the start of this life overflowing that you've been searching for. Say these words out loud. Dear Jesus, I need forgiveness and a fresh start. Thank you for giving me both. Thank you for giving me heaven rather than letting me choose hell.